Hi everybody and welcome to the Heart Podcast. I am James Rudd, the Digital Media Editor at Heart, and today I'm joined by Professor Paul Leeson, who is a Professor of Cardiovascular Medicine from Oxford. Paul has a deep interest in artificial intelligence in cardiovascular imaging, and we have a nice discussion all about the issues, challenges, and successes of AI in imaging and beyond. I do hope you enjoy the podcast and please feel free to leave us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. Thanks very much. Perhaps we can start by asking you to introduce yourself, Prof Leeson, for the audience. Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm Professor Leeson. I'm um, uh, Professor Paul Leeson. So I'm Professor of Cardiovascular Medicine at the University of Oxford uh, and head the uh, Cardiovascular Clinical Research Facility in Oxford. Uh, I'm also a consultant cardiologist at the John Radcliffe Hospital. And can you tell us a little bit about how you got into machine learning and artificial intelligence in, in cardiology? How did that start for you? Yeah, so uh, artificial intelligence in cardiovascular imaging has been something I've actually been interested in for many years. Um, it's not something we, originally it wasn't necessarily, we didn't necessarily think of it as artificial intelligence. And really in recent years, that, it, that, that phrase has become much more widely used and much more widely uh, recognized as a way of describing we do. Um, the reason we became interested in it was really was, was understanding how you can work with imaging data uh, to pick up really subtle differences and define what influences uh, factors during early in life may have on cardiovascular development. Uh, and so the tools you need for those include things like looking at building cardiac atlases, so you can look at shapes of hearts, so you can look at uh, patterns of change, how interventions are influencing different aspects of function of the heart. Um, and so building the kind of statistical tools and the way you can learn from large data sets you have to understand this uh, was really the starting point for us. And so your projects initially started then in, in young adults, is that right, before you moved into? Uh... Yeah, so we worked with, with young adults and also right back to the very, you know, right back to fetal imaging as well. So we did a study using uh, cardiac ultrasound in, in, in fetuses. Um, and so using that, that kind of trajectory from the very small scale through to the very big scale, trying to understand what subtle factors may be affecting uh, change in cardiac structure was, was the real key to to starting to unlock some of the the power we could see within in AI. Okay, and before we go too much further, I guess we should talk about what we mean by AI, uh, particularly as it pertains to cardiovascular imaging. Can you talk a bit about that, please? Indeed, yeah. So artificial intelligence uh, has had different in, uh, sort of different um, interpretations at different different times. I think uh, you know, back in the eighties, nineties, we talked about artificial intelligence, which was much more um, systematic in terms of capturing knowledge and uh, building uh, sort of structured systems of being able to um, interpret information and give conclusions. As time has gone on, the sophistication of artificial intelligence has changed. So, so it now incorporates a lot more um, automated learning, actually the, the machine being able to learn itself from what's going on around it. In imaging particularly, I think we see the applications really in the fact that these are images. And so actually the artificial intelligence we know about, the, the facial recognition, the, um, the, the auto, autonomous driving, all of these things are driven by being able to look at images and interpret what's going on. So within cardiovascular imaging, very much what we talk about is artificial intelligence applied to image processing and image interpretation. And you recently wrote a very nice review in uh, Jack and with uh, several co-authors, all of you are leading this field and I'll put a link to that review in the show notes. And there's a very nice central figure, which I think summarizes the field quite well in terms of the different approaches 
supervised and unsupervised approaches to machine learning and AI. Uh, and perhaps readers can go and have a, a read of that because it'll make a lot more sense. But perhaps we can start by talking about some of your favorite current applications of uh, machine learning and AI in, in cardiology and particularly in imaging. What kind of things do you think uh, we're already seeing the fruit of some of your research uh, being applied to? Yeah, no, see, I think I think the the what was was yeah actually that the writing that review was was great. It was a great opportunity just to bring together uh, people from different areas of cardiovascular imaging. So in cardiology, we very often work in we are, we have nuclear cardiology people, and we have um, you know, CT interested people, and we have MR interested people, and ultrasound interested people. And uh, to some extent, that that review gave an opportunity just to bring together the combined. Um, knowledge of what's going on in terms of this field, which is changing incredibly rapidly. Mm. Uh, and one of the other drivers of, for the for bringing out some of this sort of state art, art review and, and trying to capture this information was because I had been going to meetings for some time where you, you talk about AI and healthcare, and very often there, you know, there's only um, yeah, I'm the only doctor in the room. So actually, mm. th there's a huge importance in trying to get this now through into understanding to healthcare practitioners, doctors, cardiologists. Uh, actually uh, understand and engage with what's going on because it's moving very fast actually in terms of, of the applications which are coming through i think in terms of the ones you can see in uh, real life use right now is the very the very first few that are coming through now are really in imaging is around quantification so actually the tools we have to now extract things we've been familiar with for a long time like ejection fraction and um, other measurements. Actually, there are now working AI tools which have gone through FDA clearance and regulated clearance, which we can use in daily practice, which are have been built off um, AI, have been built off deep learning on lots of images. Uh, and we're almost not, not aware that we're actually using these yet, but we are. So, so it, it's there. I think beyond that, what we see coming through now is actually how you then start to automatically um, can assess other aspects which we're doing day-to-day -day as experts, such as uh, getting to grips with quality of images and understanding uh, whether we're acquiring good images. So there are some really nice technologies coming through uh, which are guiding people in how to acquire their, their pictures. And this is based off sort of feedback from the images coming through the machine that is looking at these, learning what the images should look like, and actually starting to interact with the human to augment how they're acquiring their images. And then the, the other area which I think is fascinating at the moment is if the machine can see the images, uh, has got assessment of how good the quality is, can extract information from the images, then you can start to coalesce all those kind of three pieces together and actually get the machine starting to think about what might be the diagnosis or what might the image, this information mean about what's going to happen to the future in the future about this patient. So about to be able to actually predict um, uh, outcomes for these patients uh, and determine it. Now, they, those predictions of disease are... Uh, slightly are, are at a more earlier stage, but actually, again, the field's moving very quickly. So actually, there are now some very robust sort of data coming through, suggesting it's entirely possible to pick up different types of disease uh, and start to understand about possibly risk predictions from images. It's really fascinating, isn't it? And one application that I'd never thought of when reading a review was the the one you mentioned first. They're optimizing um, image acquisition right at the beginning of the process before we even start. You know, looking at the results in terms of helping maybe people who are inexperienced in, let's say, cardiac MR to make sure that the, the patient's properly lined up on the scanner, that all the center lines and the planes are in the right place. Exactly. Yeah, it's kind of, it, and, and this is kind of one of those perfect situations for where you can apply these kind of technologies, because actually this is about 
uh, expert knowledge and, and it's kind of what we think of as the art of medicine but actually it, it's learned practice that we have um, built up over time and you when you see the expert radiographer lining up a patient they just do it very naturally and it seems very straightforward and we know from our own learning processes mm. actually we, we kind of forget right, one, one of the lovely examples I, I think is when you're doing echoes um, that there is some connection which tells you how to get your group image if you were asked to explain how you're moving your hand to get that image it'd be really difficult but you have learned and trained a network inside your brain to do that so that's just the kind of same kind of thing you can uh mimic within neural networks actually that same process of um, of learning how how the best things to do to acquire the image if you have the appropriate data the, the appropriate inputs uh, and when you start to get that the idea is you can then start feeding that back to the person who's acquiring the images uh, and make them better at what they're doing and then another application you mentioned in passing was the diagnostic support in terms of what we call in machine learning uh, image segmentation. So in other words, extracting regions of interest, areas of interest, in, obviously in oncology, things like tumors. But as you say, uh, defining maybe the left ventricular endocardial border. I know you've got a deep interest in this within echo, um, echocardiography and stress echo images. Can you talk a little bit about maybe how that works and uh, what people can expect to see of that kind of product? So I think there's really, there's really um, so it's actually segmentation of left left ventricle has been one of kind of those things which actually we've been trying to do for years and years and years, actually, you know, decades of time of engineering approach to try and do this. Uh, and the, the ways of which, which have been pretty good, but we know in clinical practice, the kind of tools we had a few years ago were a bit clunky and you'd keep having to adjust them manually. The real big step up was actually some of the neural networks to develop some particularly the, the unit architectures, which allow you to, uh, deconstruct images and, and rebuild them in, in a segmented way have really transformed this field in the last few years. Um, so, and, and you can see now actually with, because we have large data sets we can use to put through these pro, the, these kind of neural networks, which have been developed by computer scientists, not by, by doctors, they've been computer, they've developed in other fields, but you can apply them in ways that actually allow you to do segmentation very effectively. You need to fine tune them uh, based on what we know about how images are acquired and, and our experience of clinical practice. But now actually with, within ECHO, we can do um, you know, segmentation of the left ventricle, beautiful contour uh, tracking of, of the left ventricle and the border, in contrast, non-contrast images, uh, high heart rates, slow heart rates, in a way that um, you know, I, I wouldn't have believed possible 10 years ago. You know, when, when I first saw some of the research aspects of this kind of delivery of the, these auto-contouring systems, um, yeah, I, I, I was struggling to believe it to, be, to begin with, but actually, as you see it being applied, you realize it's really possible. Um, and I think that's something which you can now see in, in cardiac MR, you can see in, in lots of different aspects. Wherever you want to segment an uh, image, you can start to get reproducible measurements from that. And of course, the time saving, as you say, even compared to, say, five years ago when a consultant or a, a registrar would have to sit there and manually go through slice after slice, particularly in CT. Well, you've got exactly. thousands of slices. Um, yeah, exactly. And it gives you confidence. I think the other thing is it gives you uh, feeds back confidence to the operator as well. So if, um, again, we, there has been a caution, I think, about implementing some AI techniques. But when you see the uh, reproducibility of the measurements you can get, um, it gives confidence in the readings you're getting. Um, and so as a result, you can then be more confident about the clinical decisions you're making off the back of those those segmentations. And I know that your group and... Uh, uh, others in Oxford have worked hard on the UK Biobank uh, cardiac uh, MR and uh, 
uh, in terms of segmentation. I think with Professor Patterson, maybe from London, who's uh, been Indeed, leading. Yeah, on so that. UK Bank has been a great experience. Actually, it's been it's been really good fun because we kind of went when we when we came together as the imaging working group for UK Bank. It was at a very early stage before we'd actually you know, before we'd scanned anyone in fact at that stage, and, and the, the very the idea at that point that uh, you know the vision of Roy Collins to image a hundred thousand people just seemed absolutely crazy at that time. But it was it was it seemed a thing which was achievable, potentially, and if achievable, would deliver amazing outcomes. One of those situations where actually back then, actually, you know, the, the technology to segment the images was didn't really exist, but actually the vision to be able to start to acquire it, the knowledge that big data was going to be really useful for this, has now delivered really well, and that actually uh, Stephen Peterson and other groups have been able to take these images uh, and build models which can actually extract, uh, in an automated way, segmentation from, from MR images. And let's just touch on another couple of applications before we perhaps talk about some of the pitfalls and challenges. Uh, one area you mentioned was so-called clustering within AI, where you uh, apply um, different algorithms to echo or MR images of patients with different types of heart failure, and the machine is able to separate out or cluster uh, people that it thinks are going to have a slightly different outcome, different prognosis, and perhaps respond to different treatments, which is really amazing, particularly things like HFPEF can be divided into distinct subgroups uh, this yeah. was fascinating to me yeah so this this is really interesting uh, this is kind of one of the there are, there are kind of two aspects of how you can you know when you, when you get beyond the quantification segmentation kind of piece which is which is technically really interesting you start to move into the two other really big areas which, which are interesting one of those is how you uh, identify disease and predict disease in, in diseases that we know at the moment we know how to manage which is uh, then speeds up your processing for, for diagnosis and management and then the other is actually about rediscovering disease. So, uh, and you can apply this in, in lots of different, huge amount of different areas. And it's really, that is really an area of, of interest within uh, drug discovery and pharma in applications of AI as well, actually, which is mm. you know, our classification of a disease, which we know of. If you start to dig into the data, you can start to then pick out, actually, there are subgroups of these diseases, which we are not recognizing at the moment, which actually probably need to be managed differently. From other groups so there's some really nice proof of principle examples and i think there's some very early work in hfpf which has shown that this feasibility um i think as data sets grow and i think one of the nice things is, is we, we now have access to very large data sets um uh, in lots of different centers including in oxford to be able to do this you can actually then really start to dig into this actually uh, understanding uh, and it's kind of something we already know in clinical practice there are some patients with for example, FPEF, who who just are different from other patients who have FPEF, and we want to be able to pick out the groups that actually we we know we can manage effectively. Uh, and then then once you know these groups, you can then understand why some medications may be working better in other uh, other patients and other uh, than other groups of patients. And so you can really start to dissect out. And then the other layer on top of that is actually once you pick out these groups, you can suddenly suddenly find really interesting uh, associations in these clusters, which you're perhaps unexpected, which suddenly give you new insights into mechanisms behind why this is happening so you might uh, and you've, you've you see this in some areas where suddenly you'll find out for example a, a, a psychiatric condition linked with a cardiac condition um, in a way that you weren't expecting but actually you can start to build hypothesis to explain actually there might be a linked mechanism here uh, which then allows you to then you know identify targets and treatments and approaches to manage these patients in a more personalized way and finally let's talk about a little bit uh, in terms of prediction and predicting outcomes from images there's a few examples in the jack paper of of doing this from ct and mr 
Uh, and we also come across the concept of uh, radiomics. Can you talk a little bit about that, please? So this is, um, yeah, the, the idea of prediction is, is attractive, really, because it's taking it beyond the image. So when we look at images, we um, we like to do measurements on it, understand what it sees. But there's there's richness within the image, which we kind of ignore at the moment, or we think we're ignoring anyway when we're, when we're trying to understand disease. And the kind of a nice example of this might be, for example, uh, you know, the... Um, the, the degree of amyloid speckle is, is something we, we can visualize at this stage. And when you see it, you kind of know it's there uh, on an echo image and therefore you, you infer things about what's going on with this patient. Um, but the, if you go beyond that, there are other things within the image which we're not seeing so obviously as that, but is there captured within the image data set, uh, whether that's CT or MR or, or ultrasound. And so by taking whole images and starting to um, extract novel features from these images, uh, or uh, whether that's brightness, whether that's unusual edges, whether that's characteristics of, of um, um, you know, the, the, the CT characteristics or radiomic characteristics, you can then start to understand what, what is captured in the image, which might be relevant to disease outcomes, which we're not looking at at the moment. Um, so radiomics describes particular different um, radiological features within, within your um, uh, X-ray driven um, uh, acquisitions. Uh, within CMR, you have different textures and different, obviously, tissue characteristics. Uh, with, with ultrasound, you have different uh, features and ultrasound characteristics. So you can then start to build up a profile, which uh, you can link to outcomes to understand, to try and get a better uh, information. So rather than saying uh, an E, uh, you know, if you, at the moment we might say an ejection fraction of less than 35% is bad for outcome. Uh, but what you could, but with this kind of approach where you can use multiple parameters, you can start to build a a profile or a signature of 30, 40, 50 different image features, which actually give you a much more refined prediction beyond uh, you know, a 35% or a borderline 35% plus four or five other bits, which is actually predicting the real real difference and in outcome and separating out those groups. And I know that the oncology uh, doctors are heavily into radiomics now. It's it's even forming part of some of the the treatment algorithms and assessment algorithms. It's I wonder if cardiology will, uh, will uh, catch up eventually. So I think it will. I think so. One of the um, uh, one of the nice pieces of work in Oxford has been looking at um, uh, fat around coronary arteries, and this mm. is mm. a really interesting a piece of work around looking at, at a mechanistic influence on how fat is influencing uh, inflammation within vessels. But it gives, possibly gives you an idea about how uh, which vessels may be more aggressive or more more progressive than, than others. Uh, and if you get to that stage, then you can start thinking about whether you could um, you know, target things within the, that, that view of the fat, which might be having a positive effect. So you can develop new drugs and pieces around that. So that's, that's a nice example of, a, of how you might start to develop deeper insights, better ways of understanding disease through using that extra information about the, the profile of, of, the, um, uh, of, the, of the lesions that we see in cardiology, like you know, the classic one we, we deal with is atherosclerosis. And that's Dr. or Professor Antoniades. Uh, he's also been on the podcast talking about that fascinating uh, technique that he's that he's pioneering um, in terms of uh, fat and coronary arteries. Yeah. And let's just finish off, uh, if it's okay, Professor Leeson, to talk about some of the challenges um, for moving this field forward. Where do you see the areas that we need to to work on? So I think the yeah, the, the, it, 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 it's a great field. I think we've made you know, the advances are really impressive. Um, and we're, what, what is interesting for me actually is, is, uh, is one of the things we think about is the data. Uh, and this has been a conversation for some time. And uh, we've had 
I've had lots of conversations in different um, you know committees and meetings around uh, how how do we work with data. In actual fact, data is actually re- relatively available these days actually because it's been collected in appropriate ways. We've we've taken approaches to use a, a consent process to build up large data sets um, with anonymized data sets and in silico data sets. Actually, there's there's a huge richness of data for people working in the field now. So that's becoming less of a concern probably than it was. Um, I think what is interesting is actually implementation. So we have some really great um, clinical applications of tools which, which work within echocardiography, um, and it's trying to work out how you implement those into healthcare systems is one of the real challenges. If we're going to get the benefit from this, we need to get this into uh, patient pathways. Uh, and so actually working with uh, hospitals and NHS and IT systems to implement some of these AI, AI in, into, into practice is really important. And then, then if we get that, then alongside that, we deal with some of these other questions which are around AI, which is about how do patients perceive being treated using AI tools? And that's a piece of work we really need to look at and understand that effectively. If we implement AI tools, how does that influence patient workflows and patient outcomes? There is a risk uh, that actually with some AI, you know, interesting AI tools, we, we get that they start being used, but we don't properly evaluate how they change patient outcomes. So we may start using them, but they're actually not making no difference to us. Uh, and the key thing is we need to do trials to show that actually putting in these, these advances uh, have a much like if you bring in a, you know, a, you know, a, a drug or another treatment, actually really do you need to show that actually the AI um, in, uh, application is improving outcomes for the patients. And I think also, as you were saying at the beginning, getting more clinicians and research active clinicians to work with the computer scientists and engineers is also going to be crucial, isn't it, to make sure that uh, they're developing products which actually could be used and in the real world. Yeah, I think that's right. I think the, the there are what's, so some clinicians come into it thinking, oh, I, you know, I, I'm going to have a go at doing AI and I'm going to you know, write some code and have a really good go doing that. Now, actually, that's actually not what we need. Actually, we have brilliant experts in computer science who are really good at developing really mm. sophisticated and clinical grade ways of delivering AI. What we need is clinicians who are, are savvy to know, uh, seeing that actually this is a really good way to mm. change healthcare. So, you, uh, so that, that junction of clinicians who are really engaged and have uh, clinical insight and, and clinical populations they're working with and can see the problems working alongside the, 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 the engineers and computer scientists who can solve those problems is, is the real key. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much indeed, uh, Professor Leeson, for, for joining me. It's been a fascinating discussion. And uh, as I say, I'll put a link to, the, to your own website in Oxford and also to the, to the Jack paper, which really summarizes this area very well. Mm-hmm.